It's a delight to look over the audience and see a number of visitors with us. We want you to know we appreciate your coming. We also have a number of our folks that are visiting with other folks this week. Many are on vacation. Some are with their families who have graduates as well. And if you will, let me tell you what we're doing on Sunday morning. We're studying from the book of Ephesians. And the book of Ephesians has within it some very great teaching. In fact, it's a remarkable book with some deep and profound passages. If you do not believe the book of Ephesians has some deep teaching in it, then you have not considered it as carefully as you ought. I am amazed at this time as I have gone through the book of Ephesians exactly how many passages have things that I had missed when previously studying it. And what I would like for you to do this morning is to give me your attention for about 25 minutes. And what I would like to do is for us to explore the depths of the two verses under our consideration. In fact, as one explores the exposition of the text, it reveals the blessing of being a child of God and of being a member of the Lord's body, the church. Are you appreciative of the sacrifices that have been made for you? I dare say most of us would say yes. Do you realize how blessed we are to be a citizen of this country? I would say most of you would say today, my mind is attuned to that, and yes, I am. Do you realize the blessings that you and I enjoy as being a citizen of the kingdom of God and being a member of the body of Christ? Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 are short verses, but they are packed with much meaning. We're going to look at three things in our lesson this morning. We're going to look at the word saved or salvation that's found in verse 13. Second of all, we're going to look at the word sealed that is also found in verse 13. And then when we get to verse 14, we're going to look at that earnest, that guarantee, that deposit, if you will, and I have termed that security deposit. So let's begin, first of all, by looking at chapter 1, verse 13, and the first part of that verse. And Paul says, In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Now I want you to notice that first phrase, in him you trusted. The choice of pronouns that one uses reveals a lot. For instance, if I say you did this, I'm not talking about me, I'm talking about Steve up here. If I use the word we, that's inclusive. That would include both him and myself. When you notice, Paul here uses, in him you also trusted, you also see the word also, which brings to your mind, Paul is trying to draw a distinction 
And he's also going to emphasize later the inclusion. There's two groups of people that are in the church at Ephesus. The largest number are the Gentiles. The smaller number, but there are some there who are Jews. If you go back to verse 12, he uses the word we referring to those who first trusted. And when he says you also, here he is referring to the Gentiles in contrast to we, which is the Jews. Now you can say, what's the significance of that? I think it's important to realize whether you are a Jew, whether you are a Greek, whether you are rich or whether you are poor, whether you are educated or uneducated, it does not matter. The Lord's church is open to all. The next thing you notice, if you are looking at a King James or American Standard or New King James, you'll notice that there are words that are in italics. That means that those are words supplied by the translators. And if you'll notice, the word trusted is in italics, and what that means is that word was added. The reason why is the first part of verse 13 has no verb in it. That's the action word. But in the original language, you can have a verb that continues. And if you go back to verse 12, you will find this statement, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. He's talking about we trusting. So you get to verse 13 and he says, you trusted as well. But I want to key on that word trust for just a moment. Trust is the same thing as believing or having confidence in someone. He said, in whom you trusted, you put your confidence, you put your faith in him, in Christ. Your confidence is not in the preacher. Their confidence was not just in Paul. The confidence was in Christ and what he did to save them from their sins. Notice with me what gives us this confidence. Chapter 3, verse 12. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. I want you to think as we approach this verse that this idea of trust and confidence is so important. Now, notice the second part of verse 13. After you heard the word of truth. After. You see, the truth is one only trust after hearing the message of truth. You don't come and say, I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe in God without having heard something about God. Without having heard something about Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul puts it very plainly in Romans 10, verse 14. How shall they call in, on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe on him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? What Paul's point is, you have to first have a preacher preaching, then you have to have someone hearing, and he would go on to say in verse 17, faith comes by 
hearing and hearing by the Word of God. How did these Ephesians get the idea to trust in Jesus Christ? It's because they first heard about Him. Paul came through that city and he preached. He preached there two and a half years. Luke records so that all Asia heard the word of the Lord. Acts chapter 19. Folks, it's important to understand the sequence of events here. Then he says, after you have heard the word of truth. Word of truth. That's a synonym for God's revelation. How many of us have not heard 2 Timothy 2.15 Be diligent, or if you're reading the original King James, study to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. The word of truth is God's word. James 1 and verse 18 Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. God brought us forth by that word of truth, by the teaching of it. And then he uses a descriptive phrase at the end of that. He says, the gospel of your salvation. The word gospel simply means good news. In fact, you'll find the word gospel scattered throughout all the New Testament teachings how that wherever it went, there were people in the bondage of sin and there was good news that they could be forgiven of those sins. And that good news came through Jesus Christ. That's why Paul would say in Romans 1 and verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation, to salvation, to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also for the Greek. Now I want to draw your attention to the latter part of verse 13. This is a very important part of this verse. In whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. The word also indicates something in addition to. I'd suggest to you what you have in verses 12 and the first part of verse 13 is... We Jews have trusted in Christ. You Gentiles have trusted in Christ. That brought about a gospel of your salvation in whom also having believed, in other words, this is something in addition to your salvation, he says you were sealed. Notice the phraseology here. Having believed, or if you're reading the original King James, when you believed. This happens simultaneous to when one believes. It's not as if, for instance, a person is over here and they believe in God, they are obedient to His teachings, and they become a Christian and they are saved, and then sometimes later God puts a seal on someone. No, it's all simultaneous here. All happening at the same time. Sealed. What is a seal? What does that mean? I want to show you about four pictures. After that, then I want to explore with you what a seal was. 
If you look on the upper left, you'll see a person holding an ancient seal. That one happens to be a ring in that man's hand. If you'll look to the right, you'll see one that was on a necklace. If you'll look at the lower left-hand corner, you'll see an enlarged photo of one that was a ring. And you will notice the inscription that is on it. You may can't read that because it happens to be in Hebrew. If you'll look at the one on the lower right, you'll notice that there are sometimes drawings on it. And that one has a heart that is drawn on it. Those seals were used to mark. You go to the library, or not the library, the museum in Cairo. They have a number of ancient Egyptian seals. And you can tell some of them, for instance, may have a hand and a, a bird on it, like the one in the upper right-hand corner. Each of them were unique in the sense of they had like a signature. That was the way a package would be sealed. A string would be wrapped around it and a portion of hot wax would be poured on it and then the signet ring or the signet uh, that would be placed within the fingers would be imprinted into it and would leave a seal. Scroll was much the same way. You would roll a scroll up and you would put that hot wax on it and then the person receiving it would break the seal. Much like, for instance, we seal an envelope. When you think about it, it functioned as a tamper-resistant protection. It was there to conceal the content so a person couldn't see it who was not supposed to see it. For instance, Old Testament, Isaiah 29, verse 11 the whole vision has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed, which men deliver to him, one who is literate, saying, read this, please. And he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. I can't read it. You've got to open it up first. Revelation 5 and verse 1, talking about the message that Jesus sent and signified to his servant John, it says, and I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written on the inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. It's all like you're unrolling a scroll and there's a seal that unlocks the first portion. You unroll it a little bit more and there's another seal that unlocks the second portion. It was like a tamper resistance to keep someone who wasn't supposed to read something from reading it. They functioned as a signature of authenticity. This is for me. I want you to know, just like it was a person's signature that says, this was from me. In John 3, verse 33, He that hath received his testimony hath set to his seal that God is true. I'm saying, I believe this. This is my seal. It functioned as a signature of authority as well. You see, there were other people who could use someone else's seal. Maybe a wife using her husband's. Or maybe a person who was a prime minister or a servant within that ruling kingdom. For instance, 1 Kings 21.8 says about Jezebel, she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal and sent the letters to the elders and to the nobles who were dwelling in the city of Naboth. You can see how she used his seal. 
Esther 8, verse 10, And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus, sealed it with the king's signet ring, and sent letters by couriers on horseback and riding on royal horses bred from swift steeds. So you can see the use of it in the Bible. They also functioned as a sign of ownership. Like, for instance, some of you are in the livestock business. And cattle sometimes are branded. They have a seal put on them to say, this cattle or this steer belongs to this person. I want you to listen carefully as I read 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 19. This is an important verse. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Did you hear what His seal is? The Lord knows those who are His. He knows everyone. You know, sometimes we sing the song, When the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. There's another song that says, I'll be somewhere listening for my name. Does God know each and every individual person that belongs to Him? Yes, He knows. It is as if there was a mark placed on the Christian by or with the Holy Spirit. That ought to draw and capture your attention. Now I want to move to verse 14. Verse 14 says, Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory? You know, you go back to verse 12 and he talks about the praise of His glory. Verse 14, he talks about the praise of His glory. It's all about God, folks. All about honoring and glorifying Him. Don't lose me here. I don't want to lose you here. The key to understanding this verse properly is the identification of the who or the which. If you're looking at your King James or American Standard, you'll see the word which. If you're looking at the New King James, the English Standard, the New American Standard, and several others, I didn't list them all, you'll find the word who. The original word there could be either who or which, depending upon if it refers to a person or a thing. If it refers to a person, obviously it should be who. If it refers to a thing, it should be which. You can say, well, what does the original language say? The original language is in the neuter gender, so it doesn't tell you. It could be either one. So you have to look at the context. Is it the Holy Spirit that is the guarantee? Or is it the sealing of verse 13? You see, there are two choices there depending upon if it's who or it's which. 
several passages seem to indicate that it is the Spirit. If we'll read 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, and chapter 5 and verse 5, and we're going to look at that. I'm also going to put for you the New King James and the original King James, and I'm going to go ahead and tell you I favor the original King James here. If it is written as the Spirit, it could be used in the form of a figure of speech called a metonymy, where you put what gives for what is received. In other words, do you receive the Spirit or do you receive what the Spirit gives? Sometimes you say you receive the Spirit because you're receiving a blessing from the Spirit or a gift from the Spirit. Let me put these on the screen for you. Verse 22 of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. The original King James says, given us the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. Both of those are grammatically possible. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 5. Now he who prepared us for this very thing is God who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. The original King James reads, given unto us the earnest of the Spirit. You see, in both instances, it's either do you receive the Spirit as a gift or do you receive something the Spirit gave. And I know you're probably saying, well, what's the significance of this? What's the point of this? Clearly, the Holy Spirit is involved in the sealing of, or marking of the person who is a Christian. We've already observed that. Well, if you go to chapter 4, verse 30 of Ephesians, he says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So that goes back and ties that back to chapter 1, verse 14. The Holy Spirit is the one who sealed us. So I believe it's proper to say here in this context that the sealing was that which guarantees or that which is our security. Which leads me to what does that mean? What is it that the new King James calls a guarantee? That the original King James calls an earnest? That another calls a pledge or a deposit or a down payment? The original word... Aravon could mean several things. Let me give you some illustrations of it. It can be used to describe an engagement ring. Here's a young man. He's going to make a promise to a young lady. He says, I want to marry you. Well, what are you going to give me to prove your intentions? Here is a ring, an engagement ring, and it's a promise that I'm going to marry you. It's also descriptive of a security deposit. Here's a person who goes out and they're going to rent an apartment or something. And they are going to say, I promise you that when I leave this apartment, I'm going to leave it in good condition. So here's a deposit, a secure deposit, that says that I will do that. It's descriptive of earnest money that is given on a purchase. And I would say that the Ephesians would probably have had this in their mind. Because just like today, if you're going to buy a home from someone, you tell them, I will give you some earnest money that will guarantee you I'm going to buy that house. 
good faith money. It's something of value which assures the fulfillment of a promise. If I understand that now, going back to Ephesians 1 and verse 14, there is something that God has given as a guarantee, as a pledge, as a seal that he's going to keep his promise. My opinion that it is the body, the church, that is the guarantee of our future abode. Why? Because Paul says that it is that purchased possession. Chapter 1 and verse 14. In Acts 20, verse 28, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to the flock over which the Holy Spirit made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he, notice that word there, purchased with his own blood. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, from whom the whole building joined together grows into a holy temple to the Lord, and whom also you are built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. This is a place where God's Spirit dwells. The church is the temple. This is God's gift, if you will, to us. It's God's guarantee. It's God's proof. This ceiling where we are marked that we are God's children. God, Acts 2 verse 47, adds us to the church. And according to 2 Timothy 2.19, again, the Lord knows those who are His. Let me sum this up now. We are blessed to be a part of the Lord's body, the church. I am thankful that when Jesus came and died on the cross, He could have just said, Everyone who believes and is baptized shall be saved, and left it only there. But that's not where it was left. Because right after that, those 3,000 people were added to the church, his body. There's great strength in this body, and there's great privilege because this is where the Lord lives. We can be confident. That God knows each and every one of us. One of the problems that people have sometimes is, does God really care about me? I know He cares about His body, the church, but does He care about me individually? Does He know me individually? Listen to Luke 12, verses 6 and 7. Are not five sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them is forgotten before God. And the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. If God cares about and even knows every sparrow, does he not know you? 
his people? John 10, verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and am known by my own. God knows you. God knows you. Those who are not a part of this body have a great invitation. I'm going to ask that you open your songbook to the song of invitation. Why do we sing this song? Why do preachers at the end of each sermon take time to mention the invitation? It's because the Lord looks out and He wants everyone to be a part of that glorious body, the church. And because He does, He expects those of us who preach His will to extend His invitation. Come unto me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me for I am meek and lowly in heart and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew 11 verses 29 and 30. The Lord is begging. He's pleading. He's knocking at the door of your heart. If you believe as those Ephesians did, you will repent of your sins. Confess your faith in the Christ and be baptized. The Lord will save you from your sins and add you to His glorious body. If you're not a faithful child of God, now come home. As together we stand and sing.